Well, again, good morning and welcome to Redemption Church. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to John 21. Today, we are concluding a series entitled, I Saw Jesus. And what it was, or what the series is, is looking at the stories of personal interactions between Jesus's resurrection and his ascension. Next week, uh, we'll begin a new series um, where we'll talk about the day of Pentecost, which is kind of the conclusion of this little segment in the scriptures. But today, we're going to look at the very last story in John chapter 21. Now, the last story of John 21 is a continuation of the story of the entire chapter of John 21. And so if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it up to John 21. Uh, Wherever you're watching, we always encourage you to have a Bible out in front of you. Now, John 21 tells the story of of the disciples, at least seven of them, returning to Galilee. And when they got back there, the leader, Peter, said, I'm going fishing. And the rest of the disciples, six of them, said, I'm going to go with you. And so the seven of them went fishing. And they fished all night. And they caught absolutely nothing. Then when the morning light hit, they saw some random guy on the beach. Didn't know who it was. And the guy said, hey, throw your nets to the other side. So they said, well, what do we have to lose? So they threw their nets to the other side and they caught 153 fish, which is apparently a lot of fish because they were very excited about this catch. Then one of them, John goes, that must be Jesus on the beach. So Peter hops into the water, starts swimming up to uh, the, the shore, finds Jesus and they get into this conversation. What happens next is a beautiful story of Jesus's restoration of Peter. And so Peter is fully restored. See, Peter had betrayed Jesus on the night of Jesus's uh, crucifixion. Well, actually, the the day before Jesus's crucifixion, Peter betrays Jesus. Uh, He fails as a follower of Christ, fails miserably, if we can use that term. And um, Peter, though he had repented of this, uh, and though he had had some conversations with Jesus, he hadn't yet been fully restored until this moment. And so they're around a charcoal fire, which is a term used only twice in scripture, at the point of Peter's failure and at the point of Peter's redemption. And so they're standing on the beach around this charcoal fire, and Jesus doesn't just restore Peter, he actually promotes Peter. At first, Peter had just been called to be a fisher of men, an evangelist. Now he makes Peter a pastor, a feeder of sheep. And so we see, or we saw last week, the the restoration of the fallen Christian. If you missed that sermon, you can go back online and watch it or subscribe to our podcast to make sure you always are um, caught up to what we're talking about. Today, though, we're going to talk about what happens with Peter immediately after he's restored in his Christian faith, immediately after he's promoted. See, at the end of this teaching, Jesus looked at Peter and he gave him simple instructions. I ended our sermon with these last week. It was, follow me. Follow me. And at the end of the sermon last week, I gave you five things that follow me meant. It meant this first, follow me. We're starting over, Peter. You and I are starting over. That's the first thing that follow me meant. The second thing was, Peter, now you know the cost. You're following me. See, Jesus had just described to Peter how he was going to die. So Peter, follow me. Remember me, I just went to the cross for what I believe in. Peter, following me is going to cost you everything but it'll be worth it. Peter, follow me. Don't step out of bounds again. Follow me. Follow my path. Peter, follow me, Jesus said, the king of kings, the one who conquered death. Follow me. Follow me, Jesus said to Peter. And as you follow me, the Holy Spirit, the helper that I'm sending will descend upon you and equip you for the work that I have called you to. 
follow me, Peter. And so right after Jesus calls Peter to follow him, right after Jesus restores Peter, motivates him, uh, tells him all is forgotten, we're starting over. What does Peter do immediately after? He gathers all of these people and he begins preaching the gospel with great power and great passion. Nope, not what happens. Actually, not what happens at all. In fact, the two words immediately after Jesus' instructions to Peter, follow me, are these. These are the next two words. Peter turned. We're in John 21. Peter turned. Immediately after Jesus calls Peter to follow him, Peter's first response is to turn his head. Jesus has just told him, follow me. And Peter turns his head. This morning, What I want to talk about is the liberating joy from the crushing effects of calling comparison. Let me say it again. The liberating joy from the crushing effects of calling comparison. And not just calling comparison, but life comparison. And how when we properly understand Jesus's rebuke and instruction to Peter in this text, it can free us from the crushing effects of comparison in our lives. See, comparison, of course, doesn't just happen in ministry settings. It happens in all of life. It happens at the playground when we're kids. It happens in the lunchroom. It happens in college. It happens in our neighborhoods. It happens around uh, tables. It happens all over the crushing effects of comparison. Jesus had just gotten done saying to Peter, follow me, keep your eyes on me. And Peter's first instinct is to turn and to place his eyes on somebody else. Peter turned, took his eyes off of Christ and placed him on someone else. He forgot the simple instruction, follow me. How often do we do this in our lives? When Jesus has restored us, when Jesus has called us to something, when Jesus has given us an exciting mission and our first instinct immediately after being called or having this great spiritual moment is to turn and to look at somebody else. God has blessed us with something new or or something powerful. God has given us a great gift and we celebrate it for a second and then immediately we take our eyes off of Christ and we place it on somebody else. We get something new, like a new house. Uh, and then we uh, hop onto social media and we see somebody else got a new house and it's bigger. We hear great news and we want to share it with somebody else. And then we hear somebody else's good news and their news is better. The crushing effects of calling comparison or life comparison. So Peter was just restored, but his personality hadn't changed. Peter was just restored, but he wasn't perfect yet. This is a good reminder to us that even after the great spiritual moments we have, it doesn't mean we're perfect on the other side. It doesn't even mean our personality changes. We're still us, even though God has called us into ministry. And so we see here in this story with Peter something that each and every one of us have done. Compare ourselves to somebody else. Here's how Peter does it. He simply asks this question. And he starts it with these two words. He says, Lord, what about this man? Lord, what about this man? 
These what about questions in our lives have the tendency for us to take our eyes off of Christ, have, our, have the tendency to take our eyes off of the mission and the simple instruction that he's given us of follow me. And we ask, what about, what about, God, what about this person over here? What about that person? God, what about this little idea that I've had? And when Jesus gives us simple instructions of follow me, what we so often do is bring in our own idea into it and say, well, God, hey, what about this? God, I know that sounds really good, but what about my plan? Uh, God, what about that person? Or in ministry settings, it's often, what about that ministry? What about that church? What about that pastor? What about fill in the blank? And then instead of keeping our eyes on Jesus, instead of following him as he has called us to do, all we're asking is, well, what about this? And what about that? And when we begin to ask what about, then we begin to allow the negative effects of calling a comparison to creep into our lives. It steals us of our joy. It steals us of our mission. It steals us of the passion that we could have for what Jesus has uniquely called us to. Here's the question. If you knew nothing of anyone else's calling, would you still be excited about your own? I bet you would be more excited. We know this. One of the great negatives of social media is the constant comparison that it's producing. Now, some of us, we go to an opposite extreme and we say, well, I'm not going to be like those people and only post good things. So then we post the bad things. What are we doing? We're just creating our own superiority in a different way. Comparison can crush us. It can creep in. And we begin to ask, what about, what about? I want to give you four ways that comparison crushes us. Four ways that comparison has negative effects on our lives. Here's the first one. When we get into this what about game that Peter was playing, we lose our unique calling. Jesus said to Peter, follow me, follow me. Why did Jesus say that to Peter? Jesus knew who Peter was. Jesus knew Peter's personality. Jesus knew Peter's giftings. Jesus knew Peter's talents. And Jesus looked at Peter and said, follow me. It's the same instruction that he gives to you. Why? Because he does know who you are. He does know your personality. He does know your talent. He does know the spiritual gifts that his Holy Spirit is going to give you. And that's why he looked at you and said, follow me. Jesus doesn't need you to look exactly like everybody else. Jesus doesn't need us to all be a bunch of uniformed Christians who operate the exact same way. Jesus looked at you and said, follow me. And when we get so caught up in looking at everyone else and taking our eyes off of Christ, when we start taking our eyes on somebody else, we begin to move this way. Jesus is going that way and the distance is getting further. Jesus said, follow me, not compare yourself to everybody else. Jesus looks at Redemption Church and says, Redemption Church, follow me. Don't compare yourself to everybody else. Don't try and be like everybody else. Follow me. Don't lose your unique calling. Jesus doesn't need you to be like everybody else. There's so many scriptures that teach us how God uniquely calls and wires each and every one of us for the purpose of his mission and his kingdom and his church. Don't lose your unique calling by looking at everyone else. Second negative effect of calling comparison is this. When we 
um, get too deep into calling comparison, it can drive us into despair. I can't remember if this uh, night happened before I was married to Lindsay or after. I just remember in the morning, uh, whether it was via telephone because we weren't living together or it was just, you know, her waking up um, saying I had quite the night. See, at that time, I had 5,000 Facebook friends. And in one night, I dwindled it down to 500. I deleted nine out of 10 of my Facebook friends in one night. It literally took me hours. Let me tell you what drove me to do it. Comparison, watching other people's social media and seeing what what are they doing and who are they hanging out with and how are they connecting and what's going on in their lives. And it drove me so mad that I just deleted all of them. Whether that was wise or not at the time, who knows, but it drove me to despair. Comparison can drive us to despair. When we did think our lives was good, we, we, good, we look at somebody else and all of a sudden we don't think it is. When we were excited about what God was doing in our lives, now all of a sudden we're not. And the more we get into comparison, the more it can drive us into a place of despair where we're not even happy with what God has given us, where we can't even celebrate the good things in our lives, where we can't give thanks because we're just comparing ourselves to the person down the street or the person you graduated high school with that you haven't even seen in 20 years or the church that just opened, whatever it might be. And if we're not careful, comparison at every age and stage of life can drive us into despair. We see this with students. They begin to compare themselves to other students who look this way or date that person or succeed in this way, and it can drive them into the depths of despair. Why don't I look like that? Why don't I have that? How come that person doesn't want to date me? It can lead to depression. It can lead to sadness. It can lead to... Um, foolish or unwise behavior. It's the crushing effects of calling comparison, of life comparison. And then this can lead us into the third one, which is we doubt God's love for us. We thought things were good, but then we begin to say, well, God, if you loved me in ministry, it's God, if you loved me, my church would be as big as that person's. God, if you loved me, my business would be growing as quickly as that person's. God, if you loved me, then things would be working out for me the way they're working out for them. God, if you loved me, then you would give me what you gave that person. God, you don't even love me. I thought you loved me, but now when I look at someone else, I'm not even sure if you do love me. And so then we begin to doubt God's love for us. We begin to doubt his goodness. God, I thought you were good, but then I saw what you've done in that person's life. And so you're probably not that good, or at least you're being more good to that person than you are to me. Do you even love me, God? And how many people have turned from the faith because they got caught up in comparing themselves to other people and it made them doubt whether or not God loved them. And so they exited the faith. Instead of following me, following Jesus, they just stepped off the path. Comparison can make us doubt God's love for us. Do you see how crushing this can be? And the fourth thing that calling comparison can do is once we begin to doubt God's love uh, or, or once it drives us into despair, then what it does is it makes us go frantic. It makes us go frantic. Why? Because we think, okay, okay, they're winning and I'm not. So the response to comparison is I wanna win. 
I want to be the winner. I want to be the best looking, or I want to be the best athlete, or I want to have the biggest business, or I want to drive the nicest car. Or, I'm going to look the best when we get back to the reunion someday, or my church is going to grow the fastest, or we're going to have the nicest Instagram, whatever it might be. And it drives us into this frantic, almost erratic behavior where we're driven by something to say that the, the only response to comparison must be for me to be the winner. Ah, but then this just starts the cycle all over. Why? Because there's always going to be somebody who's winning more than we're winning in one way or another. And the way the enemy loves to exploit this is when we think this is the most important thing to win in, then he'll shift it in our minds so that the thing that we're losing in, he'll make that the most important thing. And then we'll just start the cycle all over again. This is the crushing effect of calling comparison. And it can drive us into despair, make us doubt God's love, and lead into frantic behavior. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be motivated in life, that we can't want to do better, and all of those things. But there's a right heart posture and a wrong heart posture. There's a right motivation and a wrong motivation. And when we're driven to this point of thinking, the only way for me to win the comparison game is to be the absolute winner, well, then that leads us in two places. If we don't win, then we just feel like a failure. And so we look and we see somebody winning and we think, I failed. I failed. And, and so then, um, it again, starts this whole cycle over of despair and, and doubting God's love and um, losing our unique calling. And so we feel like failures. And um, even though something might be good happening in your life, you can't see past it. And you feel like an utter, complete failure. Here's the other thing calling comparison will do. When we look at somebody who we think we're beating or we're better at, then it begins to like develop this smug superiority in us. And so what we do is we only look at the people that we think we're winning over. Or so we surround ourselves or we follow the news feeds or we talk about the people that we think, oh, well, I'm better than that person. So I kind of like being around them because it makes me feel better. And that just creates a smug superiority. All of this is wrapped up right here in this brief interaction between Peter and John, where Jesus looks at Peter and says, hey, you, follow me. And Peter's first instinct is to turn, is to turn. I think as I've said often in this series, that Jesus was trying to teach us how to operate as individuals and as a church in these last days, in these last stories. He had 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension, and he's showing us in these stories how he wanted his church and his, and his followers to operate. And so the sixth thing that follow me meant was this, don't compare yourselves to others. You follow me. Now, how do we get rid of this? Well, one of my favorite things is when reading the scriptures, you begin to see connections between different verses. And so in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter has just wrapped up a conversation where he, he has been talking about what it means to love the brothers and what often stops us from loving each other, comparison. And so right after that, Peter says this, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander and as I look at those five actions and ask myself, what's the motivation typically underneath those actions? Comparison. Why do we slander people? Because we want to rip them down because we don't feel like we compare, right? Why do we hate people often? Because we've compared ourselves to them and we think they're beating us. 
You look at these five things and underneath there, there's this motivation of comparison. And I think Peter is uh, seeing a connection as he's writing this back to what happened in this last interaction with Jesus. And he's looking at the brothers and saying, hey, if we're all gonna get along, if we're gonna be unified, if we're gonna be focused on who God has called us to be, if we're gonna be the church that Jesus came to plant, then all of us are gonna have to do the hard spiritual work of putting away malice and slander, deceit, hypocrisy, and envy. We're going to have to put it away. And the only way to put away anything is to look at Christ, is to look at Jesus, to look at Jesus and see how Jesus is the opposite of deceit and hypocrisy. He was open and vulnerable, and he gave himself to us. To see how Jesus doesn't slander us, Jesus speaks well of us to our heavenly Father. And then to begin to work through those negative things in our heart and to uproot those so that we don't fall into the trap of comparison, so that we can be liberated and free from it. In the conversation that Jesus and Peter have back in John after uh, Peter says, well, what about him? Jesus rebukes him. He gives him I mean, a pretty stern rebuke. And in the stern rebuke, there are three elements of it that I want to walk us through. The first thing he says is this, if it is my will that he remain until I come, let me read the whole verse. What is that to you? You follow me. The first thing that Peter does in here is he says this. He says, my will, not your will, Peter. Peter, you're so concerned about what you want and what your will is and what your will is for yourself and what your will is for other people. And Peter uh, is told by Jesus, no, 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 no. It's about my will, Peter. It's about my will. Listen, your calling is about Jesus's will. Your calling is about God's universal plan and will, both for your life and for his church, and for his kingdom. It's not about your will. And when we start asking, what about this and what about that? What we're trying to do is to take our will, place it in front of Jesus. And so our will's out in front, then Jesus. And we say, oh yeah, I'm following Jesus. But Jesus, I'm only gonna follow you if you're following my will. And the moment that my will gets um, transferred out for your will, well, whoa, 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 now what about? And Jesus is reminding him that Peter, if you're gonna follow me, it's gonna be about my will, not your will. And Jesus tells us what his will is. His will is that all men would be saved. His will is that we would love him, heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's what his will is. It's his will, not our will. Now, the psalmist in Psalm 37, I think understood this. I think this particularly connects in this story because of the verse that follows. But in Psalm chapter 37, This is, I think, the place we need to get to. In Psalm 37, verse 23, it says this, the steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. The steps of a man or the path, the following of Jesus, right, are established by the Lord when we delight in his way, when we're about his will, not our will. Jesus looks at Peter when Peter says, what about him? And he says, no, 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 no. What's it to you? It's my will, not your will. In other words, Peter, I'm going to establish your steps. Your job is to just follow me. Friend, Jesus is establishing your steps. Jesus is establishing your steps. What if it's his will that um, your thing doesn't grow as fast as the thing next door? He's establishing your steps. 
What if it's his will that you don't get married at 30 when the person um, that you're looking at got married at 22 and it drives you crazy? Jesus is establishing your steps. What if it's his will um, that, that your path um, isn't quite as smooth as the next person? Jesus is establishing your steps. What if you feel like you have to um, do more sowing before you get any reaping? Jesus is establishing your steps. Now, one of the temptations is to think, well, Jesus was establishing my steps, but then I fell or I did something wrong. And so now he's probably not establishing my steps anymore. Look at the next verse and see how closely this connects with Peter. He says, though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong for the Lord upholds his hand. What is the psalmist reminding us? What is the psalmist reminding Peter? That even when we fall, even when we step off path for a bit, Jesus is still establishing your steps. So it didn't go perfectly. So you fell into sin and it caused some problems. Jesus is still establishing your steps. Remember what it takes to get back in line? Jesus told it to Peter last week. Do you love me? Because if you love me, Jesus knows you will follow his commands. You will repent of sin. You will not want to step out of bounds anymore. Even when we fall, Jesus is still establishing our steps. Even when we mess up, Jesus still has a plan. He still has a path. He's still looking at you and saying, follow me, and he's still establishing our steps. He's still establishing your steps. So follow him. Follow him. He's establishing your steps. Listen, this is liberating. Why? Because it means we don't have to be frantic and worried about what everyone else is doing and how they're winning or how they're losing or what's going on over there. All I have to do is know this, that Jesus is establishing my steps. So my only job is just to keep on following him. Just keep on following him. High schooler, it doesn't matter how quickly it seems like somebody else is progressing in life. You follow Jesus. Just keep following Jesus. He's establishing your steps. This is true at every stage in life. It's true for every ministry. Follow him. He's establishing your steps. He will get you where you're supposed to get to at the speed and the time you're supposed to get there. He's establishing your steps. Do you trust him? The second thing Jesus says in this little text is this. He says, what is it to you? <laughs> what is it to you, Peter? In other words, he's saying, uh, Peter, why does it matter what I do in that person's life? Why does it matter what I do in that person's business? Why does it matter what's going on in that person's house? Why does it matter what's going on in that church? What is that to you? And the only appropriate response is, well, it's nothing. Peter should say, it's, it's nothing to me. It's nothing to me. And here's what he means by it's nothing to me. In other words, what's going on over there isn't going to affect what you've called me to. What you're doing in someone else's life or what you're not doing in someone else's life isn't gonna change, Lord, what you're doing in me and in the knowledge that I know that you're establishing my steps. I'm not gonna determine, God, whether or not you love me based upon what you're doing elsewhere. I know that you love me because of what Christ did on the cross, and so I'm just following you. It is nothing to me. Now, when it gets to the point where we can say it is nothing to me what God is doing somewhere else, then that leads us to two things. And these two things are liberating joy. One, regardless of what God is doing anywhere else, you can be focused on what he's called you to. And so maybe in the past, when somebody else was succeeding quicker, 
It made you take your eyes off and go over there and it drove you into despair. But when you get to the place where you can say, it's nothing to me, no matter what's going on over there, good or bad, your eyes are just on Jesus and you're gonna run after your calling and your mission and what God has called you to do. And that's joyous. It's joyous. The second thing, when you really mature through this process is this, even when God is doing something amazing over there because it's nothing to you, you can celebrate other people's success. You can celebrate their success. You can look at that and say, it's nothing to me that they're succeeding quicker or better or higher or greater than I am. It's nothing to me. Why? Because I know Jesus is establishing their steps and I know Jesus is establishing my steps. And their success does not change the fact that Jesus is establishing my steps. When I was coaching track, one of my favorite things about coaching track, I had about 40 athletes on my team and they would each participate in three events in a particular track meet, which means there were 120 opportunities for somebody to break a record. And I loved coaching track because at the end of every track meet, it never failed that somebody would have PR'd. That means a personal record. And so at the end of the meet, whether we won or whether we lost, whether the majority of the athletes did good or bad, there was always a reason to celebrate because I could look and say, so-and-so jumped three inches further than they've ever jumped before, and that's a reason to celebrate. Friends, when you realize that Jesus is establishing the steps both for you and for all of the other Christ followers around you, then there's always a reason to celebrate because you can look and say, man, look what Jesus is doing over there, and look what Jesus is doing over there. And that is liberating joy because now you're not just looking at the success in your own life or the success in a couple people's lives. You're looking at what God is doing across the country or the world or the city or whatever it might be. And you've got a reason to celebrate because God's on the move and he's establishing steps. And that liberates you from the crushing effects of calling or life comparison. Jesus ends at the end and he says these words, you follow me. That's the end of his little instruction to Peter. He says, you follow me. He's going to go back to his same instructions. Follow me. Follow me. But he's going to say this. You, Peter, you follow me. You. Now, the you here is twofold. First, it's you, as in it's emphatic. Like, Peter, where are you going? Peter, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Don't you remember what we just did? You betrayed me. I restored you lovingly, graciously promoted you. Stop looking at them. You, hey, Peter, come back to me here. Why are you taking your eyes over there? Keep your eyes on me. Jesus is trying to get Peter's attention in the same way he's trying to get your attention. And he's saying, you, hold on. Stop looking to the left and the right. Stop doing anything else. You, you, hold up, you, follow me. I've got something for you to do. That's the first part of the you. It's emphatic. So hold on, friend, right now. This is me and you right here. Listen, you, you, you. God has called you to follow him. And he has something for you to do. The second part of the you then is that it's deeply personal, friend. It's deeply personal. Jesus is looking at Peter and he's saying, you, Peter, you, Peter. And when Jesus looks at Peter, he knows everything Peter's been through. He knows Peter's upbringing. He knows about when he called Peter to follow him. He knows about Peter's personality and his mistakes along the way. He knows all that occurred in Peter's life. And he knows about Peter's betrayal. And he's looking very personally at Peter. And he's saying, yeah, you, Peter, 
with all of your personality, with all of your imperfections. Follow me. And friend, he's doing the same to you right now. He's looking at you and he's saying, you. You, whatever your name is, follow Christ. You, with your personality, you, with your talents and your gifts and your calling, you, follow him. You, with the way you've been wired and all the previous experiences that you've had. You, with all of your passion, with all of the ideas that come into your mind, you, follow him. God hasn't called you to duplicate somebody else. God hasn't called you to just be a lesser version of the person down the street. God has called you to be you and to have the ministry that he has for you. So you better follow him. You follow him. Now, when we go back to 1 Peter, it's amazing how these verses connect with each other. 1 Peter chapter 2, right after the put away part, he continues, and I want you to see the usage of pronouns here in this text. He says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. What's the first step here, friend? What's the first step here in stepping away from the negative effects of calling comparison into being the you that God created you to be and to do the things that God wants you to do in following him? The first part is he's saying simply this, long for Jesus. Long for Jesus. Long for Jesus so much that no matter what's going on out there, it's never going to take your eyes off of, that, uh, off of him. And your eyes are just going to say, focus right on Christ. Like you just want Jesus so much that you wake up and you're like, I want Jesus. You, you, you go through your day and you're longing for Jesus. You're, everything you're doing, you're focused on Jesus. You're focused on Christ. And you, you're not longing for all of these other things. You're not looking after all of these other things. You're just looking at Jesus. See, it's not just that we compare ourselves and our ministry and our calling um, in Christ to other things. Sometimes we begin comparing Christ to other things. And this text is a reminder to us that nothing else compares to Christ, that all of these other things that we chase in life step us outside of following me when Jesus says that. And we begin to compare our life to, well, what if I did this in life? Or what if I did that in life? Maybe I can do this in life and I can slide Jesus into it. Nope, his simple instructions were this, you follow me. In other words, take aside or put aside all of those other things and just keep your eyes on me. Stop craving other things. Stop craving what the world brings. Stop being hungry for all of these other things in the world and crave me. You crave him. That's the first part of it. He says, as you come to him, as you Come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. By the way, the chosen impression there, precious there is in reference to Jesus, not you, right? He's the chosen and precious one, though. He makes us chosen and precious because he calls us and he keeps us and he preserves us and, uh, and, he, and he loves us. But, but as you come to Christ, look at this. You, yourselves, are like a spiritual, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, 
to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up. You are being built up. Friend, when you and I fall into line and we follow Jesus, he begins to do something in our hearts. He builds us up. See, what Jesus wants to do is for you to not be looking to the left and the right, but to be so focused on what he has called you to. He wants you he wants you to, to keep your eyes so fixed on him so that when each of us, when each of you have your eyes focused on him, he builds each, us, uh, each of us up into a spiritual house. In other words, when you and you and you and you are focused on following him, then he takes you and you and you and me and builds us into a we that is about expanding his glory. But we are never what we are supposed to be until you are following him, until you are building your life only on Jesus, only on craving Christ. You're not comparing yourself to everybody else. You're not looking to the left and the right. You're not driven into despair about what God's doing over here or over there because you are focused on following him. You follow me, Jesus said. So you you start following him. Why? Because we will never be the church that we're supposed to be. According to Ephesians, God's movement will never pick up the momentum and the speed that it's supposed to pick up until you step in to being the you that only you can be. Read Ephesians 5. Look at this passage in 1 Peter 2. You have a role to play. Every kid in our church won't be served until you step in and serve them the way God called you to. No building will ever be bought until you step into giving the way that God called you to. The, the gospel will not spread at the speed and the rate and the width that it's supposed to until you step in and rise up as the evangelist that God has called you to be. And when each of us follow Christ, instead of taking our eyes to the left and the right, he forms us together into a spiritual house. He forms us into a holy priesthood. And it's going to require that we put away these things that so easily trip us up. Malice and envy and hypocrisy and deceit and slander and all these things where you, you and you and you and me are all fighting with each other. We put it all away. We come, each of us as we are, and we say, I'm building my life on Jesus. I'm following Jesus. And as we build our lives on Christ, he forms us all together. And that's the church. That's the church that Jesus came to plant. So would you let him speak to you today during this last song? Would you let him speak to you and who he's calling you to be right now? Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. 
You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.